Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Hello and welcome back to She Dynasty, and I'm very lucky to be interviewing the one and only Linda Wells. Linda is the chief creative officer of Revlon, the founder of Flesh Beauty, and the founder of the legendary Allure magazine, of which she was the editor-in-chief for 25 years. But first, I'm equally excited to introduce my co-host, Elle Shane. Elle Shane is a celebrity fashion stylist, influencer, and editor of the fashion lifestyle blog LShane'sWorld.com. Elshane and I have done numerous projects together. I adore working with her because of her incredible personal style. So welcome, Elshane. I love, love that you're here with me today. Thank you. You know the feelings are extremely mutual, and I look up to you as a mentor always, and I feel so blessed to have met you so many years ago. So I have been waiting to match you with the right person, and I asked you if you would co-host today with Linda Wells, and you, like, freaked out when I told you. I mean, Linda Wells is one of the first names I ever learned about when I became interested in the fashion and beauty space. I grew up obsessed with fashion and beauty, but I never knew that it could be a career for me. My mother was a teacher and my father was a lawyer, and I really thought if I wanted to be in fashion that I had to be a fashion designer. And it was then that I discovered Linda Wells and her incredible path to success. I followed her amazing journey from Allure to Flesh Beauty, and I feel extremely honored and excited, like a fangirl, to be sitting in the room with her today. So tell me, Elshane, what do you hope to learn from Linda Wells today? I'm interested in hearing about Linda's perspective about success, how she navigated the bumps in the road along the way, and what makes her feel proud at the end of the day. I'm very hard on myself with my perception of success, so I really would love to hear her thoughts. Well, she will be here very soon, and I can't wait to hear her answer all these amazing questions and more. So, Linda Wells, welcome. I have so many people excited to hear this interview. It is a very highly anticipated episode. Thank you so much, Valerie. It's great to be here. So I have to tell you a little story. Um, After I started She Dynasty, I got a text from a good friend of mine. He's a very established and talented design director in New York. His name's Tony. He wrote, Valerie, you have to interview Linda Wells. She would be epic. Growing up, my sister, who I've always looked up to as a fashionista, would get Allure magazine in the mail. It was her absolute favorite, and I was secretly obsessed with reading it, but I didn't want her to know. So I would get it first. I would sneak and unwrap it from the plastic cover, read every inch of it, and then wrap it back up. I credited these beautiful models that always had these healthy, fresh faces to the number one beauty editor who ever lived, Linda Wells. Now, 27 years later, working as a design director, doing my beauty fashion shoots, I always think in the back of my mind, 
how would Allure or Linda Wells have done this back in the day? I think Linda Wells is an icon in the beauty industry. She has set the bar. Please get her on She Dynasty. That is the nicest thing I've ever heard. I mean... That, was, that makes me want to cry. I know. But listen, I know that you know so many people feel this way about you. I don't. I think that so many people feel this way about you. And I'm just like, wow. Every time I bring up your name, just like the impact you've had on people's lives is incredible. Oh, that's so nice. It really is so nice. And you, you just sit there working and doing your job and thinking, no one's reading this, you know, and you find out differently and it feels so good it's such a happy feeling thank you so much so as we've said linda you've already accomplished so much in your career and it seems like you keep reinventing yourself and i love that about you and i love that you kind of take your expertise and your knowledge and it kind of sends you down different paths and we're going to talk a lot about flesh the incredible new line of skin flattering makeup that you've just created but first, I know my listeners would like to hear a bit of your backstory. And I know you've, t- you've told this story a million times, but we're going to do it again just because everyone wants to hear it. So you started your career at Vogue as a beauty and health editor. Um, you were there for almost five years. And this was, you know, this is probably a dream job for so many. Did you feel that way about it at the time? Absolutely. And I was um, not hired at a lot of other places before I was hired at Vogue. So it was particularly sweet. I think the week before I interviewed at Harper's Bazaar and was told not only that I was not going to be hired, but that I was really kind of unqualified for anything and sent out the door, not in tears, but very close to tears. And uh, and then the next week I was hired at Vogue. So I really felt like I was the luckiest person in the world. I hope that person who didn't hire you is listening right now. So how was the makeup industry different then from how it is today? Oh, so different. I mean, as a business, it was different in the sense that um, it was really just a few companies and they determined everything. As a journalist, there was no such thing as beauty journalism. There was no reporting. There was no questioning of what was going on. And as a kind of a, a power in people's lives, it was unacknowledged. It was uh, kind of dangerous and really disturbing in some ways and upsetting. And, you know, you were either beautiful or you weren't. And your beauty was used to get a mate and to advance in your life. And it was a very kind of, didn't feel like it was in your power. And nobody pulled it apart and thought about it and thought, what is the meaning of all this? And why is it so disturbing and tension producing and um, emotional? And so it was so different. It was a time when products made grandiose promises that they couldn't support and nobody questioned it. It was just it was just astonishing how different it was. And what was your first spark that um, kind of led you to know that you wanted to go into that type of career? I really wanted to write and edit and I had no idea and I loved imagery and I had no idea that you could do that for a job. And so once I got there, I thought, oh, this is a whole new um, fantastic place to be and and I loved everything about it. It was like totally the right place for me. Um, I didn't really think about beauty as a career because, again, I didn't think of it as a, I didn't want to go into the industry and I didn't think of it as a writing editing possibility. And and so um, when I started working in the beauty department, it was where they had an opening. And the more I worked in it, first I thought it was kind of silly and ridiculous. And then I thought, wait a second, maybe you could take this subject and bring some analysis to it or examine it a little bit or find out what it really means. And there were some really wonderful writers that I that showed me the way to do that. And and that was the opening of the door for me. 
Did you hit any professional snags while you were at Vogue? Anything that stood out? I mean, I hit so many snags. It's really hard to name just one. And um, But I think that a lot of it was trying to find a way to do what I believed in and not just kind of imitate what else was out there. And so that was really, that was a process. It was like, first I had to learn how to write for a magazine, and I did that by watching other people write and looking at their edits. And then I had to learn how to do it in my own way that felt right to me. And really when I got to the New York Times, um, I learned another way of writing and reporting. It was real reporting. I felt like I had to report in a way that lived up to the rest of the paper, not just, you know, kind of diminished it. So that, that changed everything for me. So as you said, you moved to the New York Times to be a beauty and food editor, and you were there for about another five years. Um, And then came another, or a huge shift, I should say. So in 1990, you were approached by Condé Nast, and you were asked to develop a concept to um, create a beauty magazine. What was your initial reaction? How did that whole thing go down? Did somebody just walk over to you or call you into a meeting and say, hey, Linda, we have an idea? I was approached um, over and over again to go back to Vogue to be the beauty director of Vogue. And I didn't feel like that was what I wanted to do. I was so happy at the New York Times, and I was doing these two bizarre, not-matched ideas. One was food, one was beauty. They didn't go together, but it was two jobs that I was doing and loving it so much. So I thought, I don't really want to go back to do that. But I had several meetings um, at with Vogue about that. And then I got a call from the top people at Condé Nast, and they... Um, and I thought, oh, well, this is more of the same conversation. And so they asked if I would go to this very fancy restaurant, La Grenouille in New York. And that was really public. It was a very public place at the time. And I thought, I can't go there. I work at the New York Times. I'm not going to make this public statement by going there with the Condé Nast executives. So um, we met in an office. And when I did that, the owner of Condé Nast, Cy Newhouse, strolled in and said, this is what we want to do. And that was it. So it was an amazing experience. I was sort of giddy and had to run and get, get, take the elevator down to the street and call my father immediately and, you know, just couldn't believe my luck. So I love how many women um, I have interviewed on She Dynasty that always tell me that, like, their first um, reaction to amazing news early in their careers that they have to call their father. Um, I think you're like the 10th woman who has said that. So it always kind of touches my heart when I hear that. Well, it's so it's funny because I think that, you know, in, in my generation, your my father didn't know that I would be able to have a real career in, right. in the same way. It was like his experience. He was an executive. His experience with women in, in business was secretaries or flight yeah. attendants right. and not to diminish that. But there were other opportunities. And I thought, you know, I was so excited and I knew he would be excited. So that he must was a have made big him moment. very proud. So you became the founding editor for the most influential beauty magazine dedicated to makeup, skin, hair, wellness. So technically, we can credit you with inventing the idea and being the first beauty influencer ever. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but... I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. Elshane, would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So I feel like every influencer in the world right now that is in the beauty space um, literally can thank you for, you know, kind of what you started. It's just a, it's just a different medium that we're using now. It is. It is a different medium, but it's also a different, a whole different thing. I think when I started, particularly at the New York Times, you were not supposed to be a voice. You weren't supposed to use the first person singular unless you were writing for the op-ed page. <sighs> so, so I kind of inherited that. And then when I went to Allure and I started doing it, my editor's letter, it was a kind of, oh, gosh, I've got to write from the first person. And But I, it, I, I didn't really feel comfortable being in that spotlight. But 
And I think that influencers really make themselves their brand, and it's a fascinating thing. And it was something that I didn't really do that much, but I found my way to do it through writing, I think. So um, Allure was a, a bit of a different concept than what existed. Why do you think the world was ready for Allure at the time? Well, they really weren't. It was like it was it was not the most smooth, successful beginning. There were there was a probably I don't know five months of real kind of terror, and um, it, because we were reporting about beauty, we were doing things that were controversial. We weren't saying nice things about advertisers and saying how pretty everything was. The pictures were you know aggressive and challenging and interesting, and so it took a moment. People were really shocked by our launch and a lot of. Uh, Advertisers uh, pulled out and and canceled their advertising campaigns with us, and that went on for the whole time I was at Allure. And that's kind of counterintuitive to how a magazine should work—that your advertisers pull out. Yeah, I mean the whole—I think the whole idea behind doing the magazine was we, the company knew that beauty was the biggest advertising area for women and bigger than fashion. And so it was an opportunity to capitalize on that uh, revenue. And then we came in and, you know, lost a lot of it. But it was supposed to be journalistic. And I came from the Times and I wanted the allure to be as journalistic as the Times, but also have the visual excellence of Vogue and kind of bring those two experiences together. Um, But and that was unfamiliar to the beauty industry. Nobody was doing that before Allure came along. So it really put people, um, you know, at odds with the magazine. And it was very difficult. I had some screaming meetings. I had people threaten me. I had people threaten my career. It got really ugly all throughout the entire time. But what it what we gained as a result was credibility. And so when we recommended something, um, the readers really believed us. So when I started Best of Beauty, Allure Best of Beauty Awards, those awards had much more power because it, we weren't just doing it to thank advertisers. So tell us um, about the early days of Allure. How many people were on staff? Tell us a little bit about that dynamic. There were 50 people on the editorial staff. There was a, another maybe 35 on the business side. They were selling advertising. So it was it was a pretty hefty group of yeah. people. Yeah, no, it was a full staff. And Connie Nast was very generous, particularly Saw Newhouse, who said, you know, create a magazine that readers want to read. Don't worry about meeting a budget. Don't worry about selling ad space. Don't worry about any of those things. If you make a magazine that readers want to read, everything else will come into place. That sounds like a dream project. It was a dream. And it does not happen like that. Did you have any creative limitations or none? We had creative limitations, but um, none in the sense of budgetary restraints. And the limitations that we had were both self-inflicted. I wanted to make sure that we were a beauty magazine. We were not um, fashion with beauty. We right. were beauty with fashion. Everything was through the lens of beauty. So that was really important. And then the other creative restraint was um, another editor at Condé Nast sent out um, an APB to all the photographers who would shoot fashion or beauty and told them that they couldn't work for her if they worked for me. Oh, wow. um, I know it's like something out of a, you know, out of a movie. Drama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had no photographers. And so what we did was we had Stephen Mizell because of a particular circumstance. So that was amazing. But what we ended up doing was hiring photographers assistants, hiring people who were not beauty photographers or fashion photographers and bringing them like journalists and bringing them in, paparazzi photographers, taking and the big 
the big technique at Condé Nast from this, the one artistic director there was a genius, Alexander Lieberman, was take a bad picture, make it big. Right. Put type all over it. And so in a, in a funny way, that limitation ended up being our style. It helped us create a style. So I'm a big believer in both creating your own limitations and then, um, you know, turning something that may be really negative into figuring out how to make it a positive and make it and work within it. So even today, my team at Flesh, to jump ahead, but my team at Flesh will be like, but what are we going to do? They're taking our idea or we, you know, this now doesn't work or we don't have the budget for that. And it's like, we're going to find a new way. And I bet in finding a new way, we'll come up with a solution that is, you know, more interesting. Right. It's not easy to do something when you have no limitations. Well, it's almost like the limitations um, made you have to reinvent and push you into new and interesting territories. Limitations are really good for creativity. Yeah. It's like, okay, you can't do that. All right, figure out what you can do. Other than um, obviously founding the magazine, what was one of your other most proudest moments at Allure? We had so many amazing moments. I mean, we did real journalism, and that felt amazing. And we wrote about the dangers of silicone breast implants before anybody else did. We wrote about um, the models taking heroin when that was totally undiscussed, and that caused a lot of anger in the industry that we exposed that. Um, we wrote about a lot of things, but one of the great pleasures was um, – being able to hire real writers to write about beauty. And so I'd read a book, I'd like the writing, and I'd call the writer and say, I want you to write for us. And it was John Updike and Frank McCord. And they were so thrown by this concept. And, you know, why would I write for a beauty magazine? And Arthur Miller wrote for us. And it was, we we would kind of explain to them, well, no, don't write about prettiness and don't write about a pretty girl think about it in a dig like let's talk it out and we got such great stories from this an extraordinary list of writers um elizabeth gilbert wrote about going to a yoga retreat in bali and when she said she wanted to do this i thought that sounds like the most boring thing in the universe and only one person could make that interesting and it's liz gilbert and that ended up being eat pray love so it was the before she you know before that was even a, a a concept in her head so it was so these adventures were extraordinary. Right. So these non-traditional paths again is what made the magazine so special. It was so interesting. And you know, just being surrounded by talented people who had relationships who were really good and then they'd bring in other talented people. It was really just a very fertile experience and working with makeup artists like Kevin O'Quinn. I when I got to Allure, I wanted Kevin O'Quinn to be a contributing editor and he was a makeup artist and nobody had ever turned the attention to they're the behind-the-scenes people. These were not considered the people who were, you know, they weren't like designers who were the front of the world. They were hidden backstage. And I wanted them to be the stars. So Pat McGrath and Kevin and Francois Nars and all these people. And we took the camera and photographed them. And we talked about their work. And they were our voices. And so it was sort of a moment before they became famous. And I think we were we participated in that that change. And it reminded me, having been a food editor, of that time when chefs were behind the scenes in the kitchen and no one knew who they were and they were sort of more on the service business to becoming the stars. And that's happened too with hair and makeup people. They became celebrities. So it was a, it was great. So incredible. So obviously you've created the coveted um, Allure Best of Beauty Awards. 
What did it mean for brands at the time who got on that list? I mean, you were a little bit like Oprah in the sense that if you got on the list, it was like you would make a brand. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it happened again and again. And it always took me by surprise because, you know, you just do it and you we worked so hard on it. We wanted to make sure that people were really deserving of getting these awards. And we killed ourselves. We'd fight and we'd, you know, try things and had all these charts and everything. But anyway, and we would we wouldn't tell anybody beforehand that they were winners. And because that was the whole it's trick, secret, the whole yeah. point was to reveal it. And I didn't want the publisher who was really in charge of selling advertising to know who we as editors picked because I didn't want her to either be blamed for not having a big advertiser win a prize that they wanted to win right. or be credited with it because it would really compromise her independence. So we did it fully independently, reveal the winners, and then the companies would be sort of like, um, you know, a blessing in disguise or else, you know, a reverse compliment and say, why didn't you tell us? We sold out and we don't have enough supply oh. and, you know, that kind of thing. But it was a good problem to have. Right. It's kind of the uh, the anticipation is almost like the when they announce who, uh, who's up for an Academy Award almost when you get that call. It's probably an incredible feeling. People were just waiting for that list to come out. It so. was really a happy time. I can imagine. Yeah. So tell us, what was one of your biggest snags that you had to overcome when you ran the magazine? You know, starting the magazine was challenging, and um, I think that not so much because of the work, because the work is the work, and I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, and I had a great team, but it was the doubting. It was a lot. There were a lot of naysayers, and then um, and people, you know, one after the other saying, you know, who needs a beauty magazine? And then once we came out, it's like, why did it take so long for them to come up with a beauty magazine? And it was sort of like... Come on, someone give us some credit. Did you feel like you constantly had to defend what you were doing and the work you were doing? Um, I didn't feel like I had to defend it, but I felt like I needed to champion it. And that, that's, that might be a slight difference of semantics, but it felt more like I wanted to wave the flag as opposed to, you know, come in fighting. But throughout the time, there were those all those times where advertisers would pull out. But I had the support of the company. Cy Newhouse would say you know what, good for you. You were reporting and they pulled out. That means that it matters to right. them. That you you have value with advertisers. And he loved it because the advertisers would eventually come back into the magazine. And then it felt like it was such, a, such an active process of returning that that took so much. It meant so much more about their connection to the magazine. So it was really, he was really supportive. But throughout, I had to reinvent the magazine. I think it was about 1997. I had to reinvent the magazine. It was, it had gone down this path and it wasn't looking good. And it was sort of in this like heroin chic kind of moment that was not positive And it just wasn't gelling. And I had to restaff and do a lot of, I had to fire some people and that was terrible. And yeah. sometimes and then, you have to oh, evolve or die, right? Yeah. And, and I felt like if I had said, I'm not going to do it. I'll walk away. Everybody would, you know, people would have been fired as well. So I thought my job is not just to start the magazine, but it's my job to reinvent it and reinvent it as I go. So I did that. That was hard. And then, you know, just budget restrictions were hard and that kind of thing. But I felt like it was generally such a joyful, rewarding experience. I didn't feel in any way that there was there were negatives about it. I mean, any journey has, you know, challenges. So mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, it's got, that's what comes to the territory. And it's really important as a creator to, to have to reinvent. And that takes a different kind of muscle. So It does. Do you ever feel like you or the magazine pushed brands to do better and be better because they knew they had to live up to this honest approach that you had? So you were really testing the products to make sure that they worked? I 
think that they definitely had to tell their story and get their research and present that really well. And there were some companies that really made a, made a great effort to do that and forcefully and responsibly. And I think of Procter & Gamble, P&G, they did a great job at like, that was very much their mindset anyway. It was like, you know, they were sort of cerebral and effects driven and performance driven. And so I do think that um, more and more companies really showed their stuff and, you know, they played their game and up their game. You know, I think that the the awards were really valued and I don't think they were used to being you know, interviewed in such a challenging way. Like we had executives that said, no one has ever asked me all these questions before. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm exhausting. sure I'm sure that the company sat around and just thought like, well, how are they going to write about our products? What are they going to ask us? We have to, you know, kind of have our story straight and make sure that our research is there and our facts are, you know, 100% right. Yeah, and I would say to the executives, like, I don't really want to go to the party. I want to interview the R and head of R&D. And, you know, I don't, you don't need to like, throw a lunch and have wine and do that whole stuff. I just want, I want the information. And they were like, well, you're different. We'll just do it differently with you. Awesome. How did the rise of digital media affect the magazine? I think the rise of digital media really surprised the, you know, traditional media um, in so many ways. And I think because it was sort of slow, 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 and then it was lightning fast. And, you know, I I remember, you know, first watching YouTube videos and it would be somebody juggling and or a girl in her bedroom putting on makeup while while her dog was snoring. You know, it was some kind of, you know, it was so amateur and kind of home movie-ish. And then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, you know, it went to a whole different level. So I think that it took a lot of people by surprise. I think it took, you know, everybody kind of nest by surprise too. I think the beauty influencer phenomenon so it certainly surprised me. I mean, I knew about Michelle Phan. She was extraordinary. But I didn't sort of have a sense of the power that the influencers were gaining and what that meant to magazines. Because really what they eventually became were publishers. Right. And I think that, you know, people in the fashion industry, people in fashion media, as well as uh, beauty media, really thought of them as like, oh, they're just pretty girls who like to wear nice makeup or clothes and show other people what they're doing and you know, they're not real journalists like we are, you know, and going to the, and having all this year's experience. It didn't matter. People didn't want that anymore. And I think that what was interesting is people wanted personalization. They want and they wanted to identify with a human being, not with a brand. And all those things that I was taught, don't use the first person singular, you know, right. don't put yourself in the story was the opposite. Or the, was the opposite. And so that was, you know, something that was an unfortunate miss, I think, for a lot of us. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we are all trying to figure out this whole digital media space. It evolves, you know, every few months, something new and, you know, amazing is changing. And, you know, we all have to kind of uncover it as it goes. So it's a challenge for every brand that we work with. Yeah, I think that, too, people thought it was a technology issue as opposed to a behavioral issue. Mm -hmm. And it really and so it felt like, okay, well, we'll just get we'll put tech on it. We'll just, you know turn what we do into tech. But magazines are not about paper any more than, you know, influencers are about technology. It's just a platform and a way to get a message across. It was really about a shift from a brand voice and an anonymity in some ways to individual connection. And that's powerful. The most powerful. 
So in 2015, um, after 25 years at Allure, Mm -hmm. um, you were let go. Mm -hmm. So I want you to explain to those listening um, what it's like to build something for 25 years, give it your blood, sweat, and tears, everything you've got, and then have a sudden change like that. It was not the best day of my life. Um, It was shocking, and it was sad, and it was... um, really a rattling experience. I'm not going to lie. It was just really, really tough. I mean, I was fired. It was not um, graceful. and You didn't expect it at all? No. Wow. I did not expect it at all. So it's not like in the movie Devil Wars Prada where she knew ahead of time and like reorganized everything to keep her job. It wasn't like one of those moments. No. And I think that, you know, I think that firing people is not like you don't give people like, oh, guess what? Unless you're really, it's a performance issue, which in my case, it wasn't a performance issue. It was a financial issue, most of all. And so, you know, you don't give someone a warning unless they're, you know, not doing their job. But that wasn't the case. So what I had to do in my mind was to say, okay, I don't want this to be a statement about what I've done for the past 25 years or what I've accomplished or who I am and what my future is. And so it was really important for me to kind of hold my head up and face the truth of it and not pretend, oh, you know, I left for personal reasons or to spend more time with my family or any of those convenient um, quotes that you read in press releases. I did not leave because I wanted to. And I called one of the first phone calls I made was to a friend of mine um, who was fired from his job at MTV Networks. Um, he was fired because he didn't buy MySpace. <laughs> Can you wow. imagine? Best mistake he never made. Mm-hmm. But when he left the building, the entire staff of all of MTV Networks was in the lobby cheering for him. I can imagine. And I thought, you know what? How does that feel? And he and then he went on to do all these amazingly cool things. It's like his life totally opened up. And I thought, that's when I, I want to follow that path. That's the way to do it. To like, okay, so this is, look at it as a moment for you to, I'd done the same thing for 25 years. And even though it was never the same from day to day, it was still the same position. And it was time for me to, to exercise a new muscle. So, so I you chose didn't, to So you didn't it. hide it. You kind no. of came full force and kind of owned it. Yes. I'm not someone who pretends Otherwise, like, I don't want to be the person where some, where everyone's like, oh, she was fired, but don't don't say it. Like, I want to be the one to say, you know what, I realize. I know what happened. I am, but that doesn't mean I'm ashamed of myself or that I'm a failure. And so that was the thing that I really wanted to regain was that sense of, like, you know, what I did was good, and I was really proud of it, and I was really happy, and I loved my job, and I didn't want it to be to make me feel negative about the job. And I loved the people who were there, and I didn't want them to have survivor's guilt. And so it was a lot of things. But the hardest thing, I think, was that I was committed to going the next day to my son's boarding school in New Hampshire to speak about my career. Oh, boy. And it was like, oh, geez. <laughs> I had to change the present tense to the past tense. And when I first said I was rather than I am the editor of Allure. So the very I, next day you said that? The next day. Okay, I have to tell you, I like literally just got chills. I have, I, you are, I am so inspired by you right now. The fact that you own that and you just stood up there and did that is incredible. Well, I, did, I had several three sessions and the first one, I completely choked up and I was like, oh, my kids are going to kill me. I'm like 
about to cry on stage, and then I got over it. Right. But um, but it but was you, one of those you things. You can't where, feel like, that bad. You've created twenty five years of like this awesomeness. So obviously, it's not like you were there a year and then you were let go. I mean, it was just it was just it run its course and it yeah, was time. It was time, and I could have left, you know, of my own on my own. But I didn't want to. I loved it. And and I'm glad that I'm not there now. And and not that I have anything negative about it. I just think it's it was time for me to try something different. And it's opened up so many new possibilities for you. That's right. So we're going to move on. So after Allure, you spent about a year as a contributing editor at New York Magazine's The Cut. And then you shifted again onto a new path, becoming the chief creative officer at Revlon, which owns a multitude of brands. And so you're in charge of curating the look and feel of all the company's brands and touch points, which includes advertising, product innovation, packaging, digital, social, and in-store point of sale. That's a lot of stuff Yeah, for a lot of brands. Yeah. How do you keep them all straight in your head? I mean, each one obviously has its own story and its own um, journey and its own look and feel, but isn't it hard to kind of be the master of all of that? Well, I wouldn't say I'm the master of all of it, so I don't want to get carried away. But I think that the the brands have such a strong identity, and it's really, you know, Revlon and Almay and um, Elizabeth Arden and American Crew. I mean, they're really very strong brands with they strong are. identities. They and are. part of what I got to do, given the timing of when I arrived, was that each of the brands was going through a new identity, a new definition of who they were, and um, based on a lot of research, and then also a new ad campaign, a new kind of, um, you know, entirely different orientation to what the brands were going to mean. So that was really a great, a great moment to sort of jump in and learn the DNA of each of the brands. And participate in how to communicate that. And I love that you took your expertise and applied it in kind of a new way because being a creative director for all these brands was a little bit off the path of what you were used to, but clearly it was the right next step for you. It was such a good, I mean, it's been such a good experience. And I think that it is what I did for all of my years of my career before I got to Revlon was I communicated with readers, which is another way of saying, you know, communicated and connected with consumers. Correct. And so you just change the word reader to consumer and you've got that same mission. And that is through images and through language connecting with people. And the motivation is different. It's really kind of getting them to believe in the brand and to buy things from the brand. But the tools are so similar. Yeah. And I bet you brought a fresh perspective because you weren't a traditional marketer in the sense that you weren't a creative director over brands for 25 years. You were coming at it from a different angle, which probably kind of really blew some new life into it. It was an interesting time also because kind of what was going on in the magazine industry with people wanting to connect with influencers who had personalities, people want to connect with brands that have personalities. And so there's a whole movement in the indie brand world. And the part of the reason that indie brands are attractive is because they have a very strong personality right. and people feel like they're discovering something special. And so it was a chance for um, those really strong heritage brands at Revlon to communicate differently and to sound more human and to have a real voice in visuals and in um, writing. So it was something that it was almost like, you know, take what you knew in editorial and make that um, the brand identity. And it's, it's just thinking about I was 
I went on a trip with Mary Claire on what they call the power trip, and they go out to San Francisco and take a whole bunch of women in business, and we go out to meet leaders in San Francisco, and usually in the tech world, and spend some time together, and it was amazing. And so one of the things, we, we went to Pinterest, and there was a new COO at Pinterest, a woman who was saying, everybody out here wants storytelling. Everybody in the tech world wants storytelling. Right. And I'm like, everybody in the storytelling world wants tech. We should have a mixer. But it's, so it was bringing storytelling from the world that I knew how to do it. It was so natural to me, to brands. And that, so that was a really fun thing to do. Okay, so let's talk about kind of your latest project. Um, so not only do you oversee the these brands at Revlon, but you've recently launched a, a new brand that's really turning heads called Flesh. So tell us about Flesh. So Flesh just launched in July, and it's a brand that I thought about for years and years doing a makeup brand. And what I really wanted to do was figure out a way to do something that was both stylish and comfortable in one. And usually you have one or the other, but you don't have both. If you are comfortable, then you everything's neutrals and everything's kind of skincare oriented. And if you're stylish, it's really like strong, heavy makeup, and it's not, you know, you have to sacrifice comfort. And it what really inspired me was um, what was going on in fashion. And when I was at Allure, I also went to all the fashion shows. So I spent a lot of time in fashion. And so what was going on in fashion was that athleisure was selling more than designer fashion. and But athleisure was either kind of hype beasts and street fashion um, and a kind of sport thing, or it was like yoga pants. And it wasn't stylish in, in the same way that fashion was stylish. And then suddenly... The fashion world started shifting, and there's the people started wearing sneakers, and they started wearing looser clothes. And I'm looking at the way you're dressed and how cool that is. But, <laughs> and everything was sort of more oriented toward moving and being strong and, you know, f- expressing yourself. And then I saw on the Valentino runway a tracksuit that was, I think, $4,000 safely. And it was a tracksuit, but it was the best-looking tracksuit you've ever seen in your life. And I saw what was going on on the Gucci runway with those amazing sneakers and the bomber jackets. And it was like, that's what I want in the beauty world. And so it it was that marriage of those two things together, that tension between high fashion, uncomfortable with sporty, not chic, and um, bringing those two things together, same thing in beauty. So that was the concept behind it. And then um, and it has a little bit of an indie brand vibe. It has such a strong voice, which I love. It's actually done. It's incubated at Revlon, but it is done as an indie brand. We used independent outside suppliers for the formulas, for the colors. I worked with a tiny, tiny team. We have four people who are it. dedicated to the brand, solely dedicated to the brand. And I, But I worked with an independent creative director and an independent makeup artist to develop the brand. The makeup artist and I had known each other and he goes to South Africa and Amsterdam and Japan and like finds odd colors and mixes things himself in his apartment. And, and so we did the colors and, and did all the formulas. And it was like, okay, well, how many foundations are we going to have? And right about that time, Rihanna came out with Fenty with 40 foundations and she was the first and that was really um, a declaration of the importance of be- inclusivity and beauty. And, you know, it's shocking that it took that long, but there... So she's the first brand to ever have that many shades? I, You know, I think there are other brands that had a lot of shades, but she made that her... 
her platform. Statement. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that happened. And then it was like, okay, well, we cannot have fewer than 40 shades. That's, right. that's now table standard, stakes. Yeah. yeah. It's the new standard and it has to be the way it is. So we developed 40 shades of foundation and then decided that everything should be um, designed and formulated to be inclusive. So all the highlighters work on different shades of skin. And we have nude lipsticks that work on different shades of nude because previously there are still lipsticks in a lot of lines that are called nude. Yeah, and well, it's tell us peachy the story. beige. Tell us the story about the crayon. The crayon. I love this crayon story. Right. So the crayon, in my crayon box when I was little, there was a crayon. It was called Flesh, and it was peachy beige. Sure was. And that's not the color of flesh. No, there is not. no one thing. And when I was at Allure, people would say, you know, flesh-colored stockings or a flesh-colored lipstick or a nude-colored lipstick or a flesh-colored dress. And I'm like, you can't use that. That is not one thing. So it was something that I had been fighting for a long time and then wanted to bring that to that tension to this new brand. So Yeah, you know, the crayon story is something that resonates me. uh, One of my closest friends growing up had very, very dark skin, and um, we used to draw a lot together. And I remember sitting with her with her crayon boxes, and, you know, I remember the crayon very well, the flesh-colored crayon. And I remember trying to blend colors for her to try to get her skin color, and she was very annoyed by the fact that flesh... Um, was not her skin color. So definitely um, something that I'm sure resonates with so many people. These are things that that tell women and girls, really girls and people, that they're not included and, and they're not beautiful and they're not good enough. And it's so... It predates conscious thought and analytical thought. So you think about the Band-Aid. Well, that Band-Aid was made to match your skin, but that doesn't match everybody's skin. Or you think about... I've never thought about that. You think about point shoes. Point shoes are... That's been a recent, you know, that's been a recent change. But up until very recently, they were a kind of peachy color. And the list goes on and on. There are the Barbie dolls. There's one thing after the other. And you think it, there's even there's even a paint color called flesh and a paint color called nude. That's wrong. But the message that you get as a child is that yeah. you're not... You know, that's not you. You're other. Right. And that gets under your skin, you know, in a kind of... So that was one of the things that I felt like was really important to really important. to expose and to talk about and to think about and to think about all these things that... All these messages that we get that we internalize that um, can be really damaging to our sense of belonging and our sense of pride and our sense of beauty. And beauty isn't just being pretty. It's being included. I'm sure it's safe to assume that that very famous crayon company has no longer that shade in this box. They changed a long time okay, ago. Good. A long, long I haven't long checked time in a while. Yeah, so. no, I did check, and it was very long ago, okay, so good. I don't want to condemn them. But it's just like so, it was cultural. It was. It was. Okay. Um, one other thing that I want to note is um, you mentioned that when you first came out with the name, there was um, some backlash for the name. And in your true spirit of just being honest and straightforward, if you go onto your website, you actually kind of go at it full force and take on that issue. Tell us why that was so important to you. And a lot of people might have gotten the feedback and you know said, okay, maybe we should change the name, but you have not done that. Again, you have not bended, and I think that I'm seeing a pattern here for you as well. <laughs> right, uh-oh. Is it a, a good pattern? A good we pattern, because this happened once before, and yes, it turned it into has. something great. Yeah. Well, the first moment where I thought, I thought flesh was like the greatest thing ever. I thought it was this kind of 
sensuous, voluptuous, right. interesting, comfortable idea. And I wanted the logo of Flesh to look voluptuous and sensuous and kind of like soft porn of the 70s. And so um, I thought all that was the greatest thing going. And then my um, younger son was home from school and we went out for dinner and he's like, that's the grossest name, Mom. Flesh is a terrible name. It's disgusting. And we got in such a huge argument that we stopped talking through dinner and just sat there seething silently, each of us. And um, what I did not know was that there are lots of people who think of flesh and think of zombies, flesh-eating bacteria. There was actually an art show at the Jewish Museum in New York about flesh and how offensive that is. There's a whole Reddit thread. And then, of course, a lot of the names of the products are provocative, deliberately provocative. We have one called Flesh Pot. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's that don't Google it because you'll get the most disgusting porn site you'll ever see in your life. But so one thing on on, and on these, these, these provocative things. But I think that I thought that it's it's what we it meant something to me it appealed to me and i think sometimes something that's that's provocative can be memorable and be interesting and so one of the things that we did was we made a kind of fake newspaper and um the art director ruba abunima had it designed it it sort of deliberately to look not well designed and then I wrote it and wrote things like you know flesh denies that it was a makeup line intended for zombies or you know (laughs) flesh hired Stephen King as their marketing director but Wes Craven was unavailable and you know and then we took all the quotes from Ulta.com and from Reddit and from all the reviews and all the negative quotes like fire the marketing department and this is the most disgusting name and what are they thinking so that that, you know, we kind of embraced it as opposed to coward. Listen, you, you're in a position right now where you are going to redefine what this word means to people, and you're poised to do it in a very strong way. So I think that if everyone kind of took the approach of, well, I can't use that word for my brand because it already means this to so many people, we'd run out of words, and then nobody would ever be able to start a brand again, right? So it's what we put behind it mm-hmm. and the imagery that we put with it and the words that we choose to you know, accompany it that make a difference. And so obviously you're being very thoughtful in, you know, how you make people perceive this brand. So I think it's going to be great. It happened with Allure. And, you know, the the feeling was it's a name that people couldn't pronounce. It was, and we almost abandoned it right before we came out with the first issue. And it didn't have a distinct meaning to a lot of Americans. And so, um, and it wasn't commonly used. It was really an interesting thing. And and when the executives of Connie Ness thought, you know what, we can't use this word. It's just not, it doesn't work. I thought, you know, well, what did Vogue mean before Vogue came along? I mean, it was, what did Glamour mean before Glamour came along? The words are not necessarily Vanity Fair. What did that mean to people? You know, you create the meaning. Right. And so I felt like we can create the meaning for this brand. So on your website, it says, meet flesh, uncensored, unfiltered, unapologetic. So I love that attitude because it kind of seems like the opposite of what makeup is supposed to do. Um, So talk a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, makeup has changed and how women use it. But again, it seems counterintuitive. Well, I really felt like one of the things I was noticing was that women were really embracing this sense of being who they were. And, you know, now it feels almost so common. It was like the hashtag no makeup or woke up like this or unfiltered or, you know, the the use of the word um, transparent or, you know, authentic and to the point of it being almost hackneyed. I can't even use the word authentic anymore without kind of rolling my eyes internally. Right. 
But there was this drive, and the drive was, see, this is who I am, and I'm embracing myself and my flaws and my weaknesses, and I'm going to expose them to the world and make them my strength. And I think that that's what influencers have done so well. It's like, this is who I am. And they're like, here I am. And I'm going to wear, you know, I'm a guy and I'm going to wear five pounds of contour and it's who I am. And I really like it. And so I feel like that is such a strong trend right now. And I wanted flesh to really embrace that, but also do it in a way that was about not about covering up and changing who you were, but really allowing makeup to be part of your self-expression and to do it in a bold way, like take that strong red lipstick and wear it if that was your thing, or wear no foundation if that's your thing, or wear highlighter on your eyelids if that's your thing. So just to kind of use the makeup and let it be yours as opposed to the dictum of a makeup company saying, you have to use this look. Your your vision and mission and um, the messaging and the package, everything about it is so clear. So I just feel like it's really going to resonate with a lot of people. You know, I have to tell you, um, I decided after reading so much because I hadn't tried the product to get in my car and drive to Ulta. And I went in and they told me it was sold out. The whole thing? There was, okay, so I went over and it was a mini store. Okay, so it wasn't their full store. And so they said they were waiting to get more because it was doing so well and women were loving it. Um, And so there was, you know, a couple of shades there that weren't my shade, so I didn't buy them. But just the feedback that I was getting from the salespeople were that people were going crazy for this brand. But I was so excited to to try them. So I'm excited to go. Tell me which door it is. I'll go there. No. (laughs) (laughs) It was the one in Westwood in Los Angeles. But the funny thing is, is when we launched in Ulta, New York, we got to the store on um, 86th and 3rd, and they didn't have the merchandising unit, what they call a gondola. And the fixtures were not in the back. And we were like, wait a second. It was 6 a.m. on a Sunday in July, right after July 4th. And we called other stores, and I got my car out of the garage, and I took two members of the team, and we drove to Queens, got their fixtures, and put them in the back of my car, and went to Manhattan and unloaded them and put it together ourselves. It It was like, that's what we do. So if I know the store, I'll go there, and I'll say, come on, I'll I'll bring them the products. They were really anticipating getting more product. That's good. It was really in demand, so I'm going to go seek it out and find it. Um, So let's talk a little bit about Ulta, because Ulta has become um, a bit of a mecca for women, and it's the end-all, be-all. It's a big deal to get in there. They carry the best brands. They really stand behind their products. So tell us about the story of um, the partnership with Ulta and how that happened. Oh, just it's such a great story. I had worked with the people from Ulta before when I was at Allure, and we did some things with them, and I went to one of their GM conferences, and it was so inspiring, the enthusiasm that they have. And I grew up partly in the Midwest, so I love their Ulta's based in Chicago, and I love that kind of unabashed enthusiasm and positivity um, that I know is a stereotype of Midwesterners, but I can say it's mostly true. So we were creating this line at uh, at Flesh, and, and we wanted Ulta to carry it, but we hadn't shown any, them anything. And so I had a meeting with Tara Simon of Ulta, and um, halfway through the presentation, she said, when can we have it? Wow. I want it. When can we have it? So that was a huge ex- – that was like one of the best days ever. First of all, it's so – democratic. They have mass and they have prestige under one roof. They have a salon. It's like a beauty paradise, but it's also very friendly, very unintimidating, which I think is, you know, not usually the case with beauty. And it's just 
very positive, really helpful. They'll leave you alone if they want you to be alone. The salespeople will help you, but they're not barreling down and like forcing you and you feel like you don't want to engage or have eye contact with anyone because they'll then you'll be in their clutches. Right. It's really a different experience. And um, I'm obsessed with Ulta just because you can go in there and buy high end products. And sometimes you want to buy something that's um, not quite as expensive and you can mix and match things together. And they just really have gotten it together and done such a beautiful job. Yeah. They have the best loyalty program. It's bright. It's happy. But it's I also feel place. like I feel like it's like that's what that's kind of become a community. You know what it I mean? Has. It's like a, there's something really positive, and like you t- when you're in line and you're talking to totally. people and you're talking. Their staff there's, is awesome. I don't know what they've great. done there. It's like they have some magic fairy dust on them. It's a really joyful place, and I feel like we're all looking for a place to have a connection to other people, and that's you know for a lot of us, it's it's Alta. Well, I think that's a very very smart strategic partnership, just perfect for that brand. So great great job on that. So, Linda, um, tell us, if someone's going to try Flesh for the very first time, what are a couple of must-try items? I love the Thick Stick Foundation. It is so – I use it every day. It's portable. You can just you apply it with your finger, apply it directly on your skin, apply it with a brush, and it comes in 40 shades with all these different undertones. It's a great product. It's also great if you – if you want to, you can use it as under eye concealer. It's a fantastic under eye concealer, and mm-hmm. you can use a darker shade as contour. So it's a really versatile thing. And and you can I, test the colors in the store just to yeah, see yeah. what matches with you. Yeah, and don't uh, you just gestured testing it on your hand? Do not do that. Test it on your cheek, okay. and then go to the window and look at it in natural light. Oh, I've okay. had I've had makeup artists try foundations on me and I've gotten home and the next day woken up put it on it was terrible you need to like really look in a mirror take the mirror to the window look at them look at them on your face oh my god that's an amazing tip your face is different from your hand but anyway so yeah I think that it's really important to try the foundation is fantastic flesh pot is an eye cheek and lip gloss and it just you can apply it with your finger on your eyelids you can put it on your cheeks you can put it on your lips it is sensuous it's comfortable it's easy it's uncomplicated it's the kind of product i think of as as our hero product and it's our bestseller and then fleshy lips are the lipsticks that are all 10 shades of nude because everybody is in one shade of nude and they're very moisturizing i'm crazy about that lipstick great well we'll definitely have to try all three of those products so this is the one question that everybody who i told i was interviewing you was it was funny because it was the must ask question so is there any such thing as um, anti-aging creams? <laughs> is that is that real? I don't know why, but that one came no, up. No, <laughs> it's funny because it's like the question that I always think about. What questions everybody at cocktail party ask me? I use them and I believe, but I think that, you know, what there isn't the test case where there's the you that didn't use them. Right. So you'll never know. And Matt, some of it's just Unless a matter of Unless you do like, half your face and then <laughs> you become like a guinea pig. you're an insane person. <laughs> then you're called away for being crazy. Right, right. Um, so I, yes, of course, now the standard answer that everybody gives and you want to roll your eyes and shoot the person is a, yes, there is an anti-aging cream and it's called sunscreen. I know that's not fun, but you have to do it. That's a great and answer. Don't though. be stupid. Wear sunscreen. And one of the most beautiful ones if to put a little product pitch in there is Elizabeth Arden's Pravage Day Sunscreen. It's gorgeous. Okay. So anyway, well, I'm going to trust you because I'm sitting across from you and your skin is ridiculously flawless. Um, like I'm. Yeah. Don't I, look closely. Can and I I'm get a list young. of all of your creams? <laughs> <laughs> and then there are a lot of really good ones. So I, I use, I have a whole list of ones I really like. I'm really into one called Erasa Zep 
30, I think is what it's called. It's by a chemist who used to be at a Estee Lauder company, and he went off and did this product, and it's a really great um, anti-aging product, and we did, did a lot of research. Provage, Elizabeth Arden, that's another one, really good antioxidant. There are a lot of things you can do, okay. and we're finding out more things like anti-blue light and anti, you know, there are a lot of anti-pollutants and things like that that you want to pay attention to that all can degrade your skin. And getting more sleep is really so crucial. Yes. That's like the beauty, the whole concept of beauty sleep is not a myth. It's true. It's real. And you need it. Okay. So give me one pointer for your younger self. I, you know, I was lucky in the sense that I made my mistakes, but I had such a great experience through it all. And I think that my younger self, I think I really liked being the youngest person. Like I was hired at the times and they were like in shock. I was so young. Why? That's ridiculous. And when I went to Connie Nest and started Allure, I was 31, and people thought, you're too young to do this. And I thought, I kind of enjoyed that, being being the youngest one in the room. And then all of a sudden, there was one day I woke up and I'm like, whoa, I'm the oldest one in the room. How did that happen? And um, and so I think that maybe the, to my younger self, it's like, don't overestimate the value of youth. Youth is really, really great, and yeah. it's fantastic, but there's also lots of other chapters, and it's you're not just identified and uh, by your youth. And I think that we are seeing that now. The way that the, there's a there's such a nice confluence of, you know, the millennials informing, you know, people of my generation, and then my age people informing the millennials. And there's so much that we can learn from each other. Yes. I've had some great experiences. My boss of the New York Times was a woman named Carrie Donovan, and she was an older woman who was hilarious and inspiring and taught me everything, every single thing, including how to have fun. And she introduced me to Carl Lagerfeld, and she introduced me to Calvin Klein. And I got to meet everybody, and she just was generous that way. And then and she was also brutally honest to me when I started Allure. She was like, this could be better. So I was yeah. like, all right. And then when I went to work at Allure, I hired a woman named Polly Mellon, who was a very famous fashion director. She was at Vogue. She did all of Richard Avedon's shoots. She was the, yeah. you know, all the memorable pictures you've seen were Polly Mellon. And I brought Polly Mellon to Allure to be the creative director, and she changed my life. She taught me everything about fashion, and she put Allure on the map as a fashion magazine. I was sitting in the you know, eighth row at fashion shows. And Polly showed up and I was right there in front with her and, you know, having dinner with Johnny Versace and learning all these things that she taught me. And just sitting next to her at a fashion show was everything. And she was 75. Then I hired this woman named Joan Crone. And Joan was uh, in her 60s and she decided to take on a new career. And the career was being a a reporter on plastic surgery. Yeah. And she distinguished herself. She won every award. She did the hardest and smartest reporting. And, you know, by the time, I think she's 90 now. And so I think about these people 90. who've taught yeah. me, yeah. you know, there is not, it's not just youth and it's not just age. Right. It's, you can learn from everybody. So that being said, what is one value that you kind of wish and hope that younger generations learn from you and, and your generation? I think that it's the value of hard work and humility. Um, that sounds like really the wrong thing to say. When someone says humility, it sounds like the opposite. But, but I think that there's this sense of you can always learn and you don't know yet. And there's there are so many. I've I've learned so much in the past two years. You know, it's extraordinary. But um, 
there are so many ways that you can learn and, and people can teach you and and to be open to all those things that, you know, we don't all have it all figured out. Any actionable advice for younger generations listening? You know, I, actionable, I think, is um, to really work and to learn things that maybe you think make you uncomfortable. I know there's that kind of cliche of like, do something that scares you every day. But there are things that I, for instance, had to learn that I was not comfortable with, like public speaking. I'm not a comfortable public speaker. I, When I was at the Times, I realized... I couldn't even comfortably speak in a meeting, and I had to get over that. So I went took a class, and I actually wrote a story about it because that's my way of learning something is to write about it. But um, that's really valuable. I never learned finance or business, and I wish I had. And I'm important. Anything it's you do, like, oh, I feel like you know. I think that I believed that it would make me less creative, um, and Connie Nast kind of encouraged that. They were like, "Don't you worry about you know the budget. Right. That's not your problem." You you just be free and creative. But now it is your problem, I mm-hmm. bet. You have it's to think always about your problem. Yeah. And it w- it's a problem in media, too. It's like, you know, we all should have thought about it a long time ago. But And it's a problem in your personal life. Everybody has to think about finance because it's a part of what we do every day. Yeah. And I'm really uncomfortable with it, but it's something that I think would be good to know. I think that's really great advice. Okay. Well, I think that we are officially done with our portion of the interview. And so, Linda, I just want to um, tell you again how honored I am to have you on She Dynasty. This talk has been so inspiring for me. I've learned so much today. And I know that Al Shane has some questions that she has prepared for you. So I'm going to hand it over to Al Shane. But uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Valerie. It's so nice of you. Thank you. Hi. Um, My first question for you is in the age of influencers, I think that a lot of us get a lot of backlash by promoting products that are sponsored. And I always think back to my times working in PR and working for magazines and how frequently magazines would have to push advertisers in their pages. And I'm curious your thoughts of how influencers are different from magazines in that sense. Well, I think that they're people as opposed to brands. So I think that um, that you're right. It's like there is a lot of backlash against against influencers sort of being sponsored, but they're running media empires and they're you know they're publishers and they are brands themselves and they're making a living being influencers. So it's a business, and so I think that it's a little contradictory. This at the same time, I was always really conscious at Allure of not giving advertisers favor. But it was my job to pay attention to them because if an advertiser like Revlon or Estee Lauder came up with something new, the audience needed to know about it. So I feel like the the key thing is to then make sure that it's not just an, a kind of obligatory post or an obligatory um, promotion and find a way to find something if you're sponsored by some brand, um, let's say Flesh, um, when we get the big budget to be able to sponsor an influencer. But, you know, find something within the brand that you really believe in and then talk about it in a way or show it in a way that is authentic and true and convincing so that even if it is labeled as sponsored, it's true to who you are. And then it's also true to the brand. And then everybody's a winner as opposed to We've all seen those posts that you know it just done with such pain, and nobody benefits from that. Yes. Okay, what has been your favorite step in creating flesh? Is it the product development or the marketing or the research development? What aspect of building the brand has excited you the most? 
Oh, it's hard to like say what's the most exciting. I mean, I love the conceptualizing of it and the thinking behind the meaning of it. I think that, and then the going going to Italy and working on the shades was unbelievably exciting. But there's just been so many steps along the way, and each one of them is exciting in a different way. Um, doing the shoots and figuring out how to do that, naming the products is like it's like a game. I love it so much. And I love kind of coming up with something that is like potentially off-putting. Or we named a lipstick Lick. And um, we sent it to Cardi B. And she ended up doing a post. It was our best EMV of any post that's ever been done. But um, but we also, you know, someone complained about, you know, why don't you just call it Moist Flesh and be done with it? Because because of the names are so offensive. And we're like, well, that's a genius idea. So we have a lipstick called Moist now. So um, <laughs> so it's that just gives me such a laugh. I just, I just it's just to me like like play. Thank you. Um, are you the same person you were when you were at Vogue magazine? Yeah, I really am. I mean, I you know, I was unseasoned and didn't know a lot of things, but I had the same desires, the same belief in the world, and I still never really lost that wonder. I, I feel like the first time I went to um, Paris to go to the fashion shows, and I was at the Ritz, and I called um, Kevin O'Quinn, I'm like, I'm in Paris at the Ritz going to fashion shows. I was like ready to burst. And he said, you poor thing. <laughs> like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? But to him, it was like onerous. To me, it was like I landed in clover. So I still feel like it's just like how lucky can you be to do something that you love to do? I also felt like I needed to work harder than a lot of people, maybe just because I wanted to. But also I felt like I better be deserving of this so I have that kind of crazy hard work thing that's very refreshing to hear um what is your take on clean beauty and how much of a craze it is right now it's hugely important and I think the good news is is I don't think it's a craze I think that it's a movement to the to the right way to do things in the same way that you know, inclusivity is not a craze. It's the way that things should be and should have been. And finally, we're waking up to it in the beauty world. Um, and I think that things have to be made in a more responsible manner with, you know, safe ingredients. And we have to ask ourselves the hard questions. And that's just the way it should be. And so anybody who's, who's pushing that is really doing everybody a favor, everybody in the industry, everybody out of the industry. Well, uh, I honestly never thought that I would be sitting here today at a tiny little table with you just an arm's reach away. You have been an inspiration to me for 15 years that I've been in this industry, and I absolutely loved hearing everything that you had to say. You have inspired me to run home after this podcast and just get to work, really. So uh, thank you so much for having me today, and um, I look forward to more to come. Yes. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how much it means to me. It really makes me tear up. And it's just amazing to see that I had any, you know, effect on anything at all. I feel like I just work in a vacuum and it's just an amazing thing. So I really, really, really appreciate it. That is so kind. Well, Linda, L. Shane, I think that is a wrap for this episode of She Dynasty. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. 